0: Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jonathan Booth, a PhD student in history at Harvard University. We will discuss the first chapter of his dissertation, Free Labor Under Proper Regulation, Britain and Jamaica, 1831 to 1840. So welcome to the show, Jonathan.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. I'm so glad that Mike Banerjee connected us. Um, And I really enjoyed reading this chapter. I think this dissertation is looking like it's going to be something really fascinating and an important contribution to to the field. Um, I wonder if you could start by explaining to listeners who might not necessarily be all that familiar with Jamaican history – uh, why the period from 1831 to 1840 was so important in Jamaica's specifically colonial history.
1: Thank you so much, Brian. And so for those who, who, who aren't familiar with the British imperial history, um, the British Empire abolished slavery about 30 years before the United States did. Um, so the Initial abolition was in 1834. Um, They instituted a a kind of semi-freedom known as apprenticeship. And then in 1838, that apprenticeship system was also abolished, uh, leading to, at least notionally, uh, the total end of slavery. Uh, Interestingly, this didn't necessarily occur everywhere under British control. Um, There's still lots of coerced labor in Africa and in India uh, which were viewed kind of separately. But as far as the Caribbean and Mauritius goes, the main sugar-producing colonies of the British Empire, slavery is fully abolished by 1838. So in this chapter, I'm trying to look at the, the Abolition Act itself that's passed in London and the way that that act is implemented in the colonies. Because the most of the important elements of, of abolition, the kind of on-the-ground legal regulations weren't imposed from London. The The British Imperial Abolition Act really was an outline that had to be filled in by local governments. Most of the British colonies in the Caribbean had their own legislatures. In Jamaica, the Jamaican Assembly had been functioning as a self-government, self-government for the island, at least for the uh, free, mostly white, population um, for almost a century and a half at the time of emancipation. So there was really a a long history of self-government for whites on these islands. And my goal in this chapter is to take the theory of these laws, which are often talked about by historians in the most general terms. And see how they were implemented on the ground and look at what kinds of implementing legislation was passed in the Caribbean to make the promise of emancipation into a reality, more or less.
0: Mm. Well, so I, I get the sense that the sort of conventional wisdom is that, you know, abolition and emancipation were a unqualifiedly kind of positive development. And yet it seems like the history that you tell is a lot more complicated and qualified than than that. I, I wonder if you could sort a little bit about the debates over emancipation and sort of what the people advocating or discussing the possibility of emancipation and of abolition kind of foresaw as the legal regime that would replace it.
1: Yes, definitely. The, I think it's important to start with how labor and employment law looks in Britain in the 19th century. I think for a lot of people who are trained in contemporary law, we've really internalized the idea of contract freedom. You know, you learn this in contracts, you can't be jailed for breaking a contract. Uh, but that was not true in the 19th century. It wasn't until 1875 in Britain uh, that you could no longer be punished criminally for breaking a contract. And the um, the economist uh, Suresh Nadu at Columbia uh, has shown that uh, employers were much more likely to bring criminal sanctions against workers when there was low unemployment, when they needed uh, to raise the coercion level, to make sure they could maintain their workforce. And I think when when that important context is added, it's not that surprising that for large segments of British society, the idea that coercion would continue after the abolition of slavery, that wasn't a, an unusual idea. Brit- the British economy uh, domestically also had a great deal of coercion. And so I, in the chapter, I have... You know a number of quotes from people that we think of as the great heroes of abolition and you know, many who really were uh you know they're, they're known as uh, kind of in british historiography as the saints but i have quotes from them about how after emancipation we need to maintain a system of control we need to institute a strong police and these ideas that coercion was necessary in the economy generally, and specifically to grow sugar, which is a truly brutal crop for the laborers, those ideas were really widely shared. The abolitionists believed that, the kind of liberals in Jamaica and the parliament believed that, and the slave owners, when they were forced to decide how they could imagine a post-emancipation society, after it became clear that slavery was ending, they also turned to these ideas of coercion. Um, One former plantation owner told a parliamentary committee looking into the abolition of slavery, he said that he would support criminal sanctions for breaking contracts. And he said, you know, if a plowman in England breaks his contract, he would be criminally punished. And he thinks that's a good way to uh, transfer to Jamaica. So in this scenario in 1833, when the British Abolition Act is being debated, everyone who has Uh, direct influence over the process, believes that sugar should continue to be grown as the core of the colonial economy, and that coercion is necessary to do so. There's lots of fears, especially in the larger islands like Jamaica, that when slavery is abolished, that the formerly enslaved people would make a fairly rational choice and buy land away from these brutal sugar plantations. And there are a lot of different schemes to try to stop that. Because you know, they, they recognize that this would lead to a uh, diminishment in sugar production, which is the core of the colonial economy. And so aside from the enslaved people who had uh, in Jamaica uh, staged quite a large rebellion in the winter of 1831 to 32, everyone who's making decisions in parliament is kind of on the same page about what is required to maintain the colonial economy.
0: Yeah, I mean, it does seem like you know the alternative would just be to pay people more money, but I guess that would that that would be unappealing to the plantation owners.
1: Yeah, and the, a lot of the abolitionists, and in Jamaica, the the white part of the population that was most allied with the enslaved people was missionaries, especially Baptist missionaries, and they did try to make this point. Um, one of the other issues is that the sugar sugar prices collapse across the nineteenth century. Um, especially as beet sugar production becomes more and more uh, easy to do and more and more productive. And a lot of the planters were deeply indebted, and there was a lot of problems with getting enough cash to pay workers, but also uh, there's plenty of evidence that plantation owners uh, colluded with one another to try to keep wages low and also to try to extract as much money from the freed people as possible through, Uh, for example, if there was a family living on a sugar estate, if the wife refused to work, the, the uh, planter would charge more rent uh, for each member of the family, you know, mostly wives and children who weren't working on the sugar plantation to try to coerce them into working in the fields.
0: Well, so when emancipation actually happened in 1833, I guess, um, what did labor regulation look like in the subsequent years? In other words, you know, when you move from a regime of slavery to a regime of free labor, like when that shift happened, how did the Jamaican colonial government start regulating the newly emancipated workers?
1: So this is one of the core questions that I'm trying to answer across the dissertation, which also is going to look at the United States experience of emancipation. So how do you, how do governments use the law to create, to enact this enormous transition? Uh, Really, you know, uh, what many have called, you know, social revolution. And in Jamaica, there were two, well, there were three major uh, acts. First, there was the Abolition Act, which institutes apprenticeship. An apprenticeship was generally seen as a failure. It was in some ways trying to have it both ways. The basic idea was that all of the people who were enslaved in Jamaica and throughout the British Caribbean would become free at midnight on August 1st, 1834. But they would be bound to the plantations upon which they had worked. They would be required to work a certain number of hours a week for their former owner. They could still be transferred uh, from one plantation owner to another. I've seen ads in Jamaican newspapers advertising for sale, the unexpired contracts of apprentices. And they were able to work and earn money on their own times. And they were able to maintain the garden plots that, that they had under slavery. But other than that, there wasn't that much difference, except in the realm of criminal punishment, where the state becomes much more influential and really kind of takes the power of punishment from slaveholders. And, and the state takes it and uses it to punish. The Abolition Act included a lot of restrictions on on punishment of people who are now apprentices. The Estate owners could no longer just flog them on their own uh, choice. There was a institute a process of law. They imported a bunch of people that were known as stipendiary or special magistrates. These are paid magistrates, unlike most local magistrates, largely but not exclusively imported from England, who are there to support and provide some kind of procedural rights for the apprentices. And the two kind of key pieces of legislation that were passed before the actual end of slavery in Jamaica in the fall of 1833 were a police act and a vagrancy act. The police act institutes what is essentially a modern police force in Jamaica uh, to cover the whole island, to be uniformed, armed, and to be able to carry out punishments. There are numerous examples of uh, police being called in to To give When an apprentice was sentenced to flogging, they would call on the police. If someone was refusing to work, the police could be called in to break up the strike, especially if it was a a combination among apprentices. And so this specifically gives the state the power to enforce the law now that the state has to enforce the law to a much larger extent. And then the Vagrancy Act criminalizes a wide range of behavior, um, including uh, apprentices carrying Uh, what in the law it says grass canes um, really any agricultural products if they don't have a pass from their uh, the estate owner they can be arrested and charged by the police um, under the vagrancy act uh, or the police act it varies across the the years but this is a very big problem because many uh, during slavery in jamaica and continuing into apprenticeship uh, many of the enslaved people grew and sold their own food and so this law was really trying to crack down on peasant production um, because as I said before, the big fear was that the formerly enslaved people were going to leave the plantations and move in, and uh, develop their own independent communities and no longer work on the sugar plantations. So between the strictures of apprenticeship, the police act and the vagrancy act, we have uh, what I call a legal architecture of post-emancipation society. After full freedom in 1838, These laws are are reenacted in new form. Um, Now everyone is, uh, there's no more, everyone is free. There are no more restrictions of apprenticeship, uh, but there's also no more protections. Uh, The special magistrates are still there, but their presence is never necessary. And a local court, what's called in Jamaica, the petty sessions, uh, which is made up of two or three uh, magistrates who are usually planters who don't have legal training, uh, they can sentence uh, black Jamaicans to the workhouse f- or to large fines for any of the crimes on the books, including larceny, including vagrancy, um, and a wide variety of vague social uh, control legislation. And I do think that one thing that I see very clearly in the Jamaican history, and I think also in the post-emancipation U.S. history, is the power of vague laws, which give huge areas of discretion to police. And without any procedural protections, it's very, very hard to prove that that you weren't acting disorderly, um, which is still the case, except in Jamaica or in post emancipation Atlanta, being convicted of disorderly conduct could mean weeks in jail or on the chain gang.
0: Well, so, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between the regulation of labor, the police, and vagrancy in both Jamaica and in England at that point in time? And like, and to what extent were they formally similar? And to the extent that there were certain formal similarities, how did those similarities play out in practice, if at all?
1: So there were quite a few similarities, especially in the Vagrancy Act. And this is the the main defense of the Jamaican Assembly and Jamaican elites, is they say, the Vagrancy Act we passed is just like the British Vagrancy Act. And the Colonial Office, uh, which actually rejected the first vagrancy law, uh, but did not reject the one passed after full abolition in 1839, their response is, is that the situation on the ground in Jamaica is radically different than in England. Um, The uh, black Jamaicans who make up about uh, 85 to 90% of the population at emancipation, uh, they don't have the kind of long-term legal knowledge and community structures that exist in England. They don't have other options, at least at first. Um, I'll talk a bit later about the large migration of jamaicans into the uh, countryside to form their own villages just what uh, they were trying to avoid but the abolitionists and the colonial office say that there's a lot of differences on the ground and particularly uh, one of the former governors of jamaica writes in the late 1830s that and perhaps you know giving off of a rosy view of the british criminal justice system but he points to what essentially is um implicit bias among all of the magistrates of Jamaica that they they grew up in a slave society many of them were slave owners or the managers of estates and that's impossible for these people to mete out equal justice for black Jamaicans and that giving them this discretion between the police and the magistrates to sentence to sentence black Jamaicans to long jail sentences often several months for you know stealing one sugarcane stalk is just too ripe for abuse and because of that uh the colonial office and british abolitionists want the jamaican laws to be less harsh than their british equivalents and in apprenticeship and after there's actually a quite a wide uh range and numerous examples of protest of these new laws from black jamaicans and their allies uh they they're very much aware that these laws are meant to keep them on the plantations and meant to keep them working for low wages and to reduce uh, you know, their other options for, for gaining a livelihood. And they protest quite strongly against the laws um, throughout the post-emancipation period.
0: Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, it almost seems like Emancipation was almost like giving freedom with one hand and taking it away with the other, or kind of substituting a sort of quasi-slavery for the slavery that had nominally been ended.
1: Yes, I, I think that's definitely true in some ways, but I think that the similarities um, to freedom in, in Britain are, are instructive. You know, Marx, you know, ironically called this double freedom, right? That you are you're free to labor for whomever, whomever you want. And you're also free to have no other way to survive and in some ways i think this was the goal of emancipation if you want to keep people working for wages you have to make sure they don't have other options in their lives and in britain you know this was a very long process through the enclosure acts through the poor laws i um, in jamaica they tried to institute it basically instantly and there are several proposals that never actually are enacted to, for example, place very high taxes on any independent land ownership in Jamaica to make it impossible for freed people to buy land, and so in some ways things are very, very different. Um, you know, there's still we still have a, a government largely controlled by whites that's intent on passing racist legislation, um, but the legal structure is new, the institutions are new, and especially the freed people have a very strong sense. And developing, a growing sense of their rights um, and their political power, which grows through the post-emancipation period. And for me, I think the most important kind of material fact of post-emancipation Jamaica is that all of these attempts, all of these legal attempts to keep the formerly enslaved people bound to the plantations, they fail. Um, as soon, you know, as soon as the fall of eighteen thirty-eight. The now freed people and their missionary allies they start buying up land to create free villages and they're not in the middle of the mountains isolated from anything but they're close enough to allow for occasional wage labor um, but also uh, to have their own land to grow food and to practice both subsistence farming and kind of agricultural production for sale across the island um, so i think that this both shows a very strong and very clear attempt to control labor. But also, I think the story of Jamaica shows the difficulty for states of establishing effective police forces and of instituting hegemony, especially when, um, as in Jamaica, the, the, the black majority is so large and the people who control the sugar plantations and really the capital of the island is a very tiny minority.
0: Well, so I I mean, I wonder what effect the shift you describe had on the plantation owners and on the finances of their plantations. And what, if anything, did they try to do to encourage people to stay and work on the plantations rather than moving to these free
1: villages? So I I think, in a lot of ways, the Jamaican elites and plantation owners could react very irrationally to emancipation as I mentioned earlier a lot of these rent policies were you know couldn't have been better designed to push people off of the plantations A lot of black Jamaicans wanted to stay where they had lived often for generations where their ancestors were buried but they were evicted um, they were forced to pay totally unreasonable rents and I think in, in a lot of ways just as a matter of, of kind of economic policy the planters themselves are. Uh, in large part to blame for the rise of the of the free villages. Um, certainly it would have happened to some extent regardless, but it does seem like there were a lot of push factors pushing freed Jamaicans off of the plantations. And from my reading of the post-emancipation history, both in the initial period and kind of through the rest of the 19th century, they just don't have many ideas. They doubled down on coercion over and over again in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, The punishments for larceny are radically uh, increased. The amount of larceny that could be tried, you know, in a summary fashion before local magistrates, the value keeps going up. It seems like the only ideas they have are to increase coercion, are to try to crack down on black culture, on processions, on black religion. And this is their only idea on how to make the plantations profitable again. And the only other idea they have is uh, immigration of uh, of indentured labor uh, from South Asia, which happens to a much greater extent in Trinidad and Guyana, but in Jamaica it's never a huge factor. There are a few people to uh, that do arrive and do work, but it's not enough to kind of change the balance of uh, labor on the island and you know it, I think in a lot of ways. You have all of the negative effects of having these harsh laws. There's lots of anger at the courts. Um, In 1865, there's a large rebellion in Eastern Jamaica known as the Morant Bay Rebellion. And that was sparked uh, actually at a minor trial for a minor assault. And one of the main causes of it was uh, anger at the criminal justice system. So you have this very harsh uh, legal architecture um, but it still doesn't succeed in actually maintaining sugar production. One of the other major changes is that in 1846, um, you know, in, in, a, in a big moment for free trade, Britain gets rid of uh, tariffs on sugar, which means that all of a sudden the Jamaican and other British uh, sugar islands are competing with slave-grown sugar from Cuba and Brazil, which you know, unsurprisingly is very hard. Um, even with free labor, even with new technologies, especially as the price of sugar is dropping because of beet sugar, and so you see all of these Jamaican plantation owners who fought very hard against uh, against emancipation in 1846 uh, when they're considering passing the uh, sugar duties equalization. You know, they say you know, we have free labor; we should not have to compete with the slave-grown sugar, and they're you know adopt all this abolitionist rhetoric because it's very much in their interests. Um, but they lose, and the kind of power of free trade, and also I think of spreading sense in Britain that emancipation was a failure. There's kind of a there, there's a major, and I think to some people surprising, rise in racism and racist sentiment across the British Empire in the mid 19th century. If the 1830s are kind of this moment of liberal optimism, by the 1850s and especially uh, with the rebellion. Uh, In India in 1859, um, there is really a a major reaction that's occurring at exactly the same time as scientific racist ideas are spreading. Um, So I think for a lot of British people who aren't, uh, who weren't and who didn't remain strong abolitionists, um, the cause of the Caribbean and the cause of anti-slavery really fades as the 19th century goes on.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, I was interested by the sort of comparison you made earlier of the sort of regulatory systems in England and in Jamaica. And I, I wonder if you think that potentially, at least, one of the reasons that regulation seems to have been so much less sort of practically effective in Jamaica was sort of the acuteness of the shift as it were, from one form of society to another, whereas it seems like in England, these kinds of social regulations had a much longer time frame in which to sort of normalize themselves and become sort of seen as kind of uh, a kind of social backdrop that no one questioned.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I definitely think that's a factor. You know, yeah. For, for so many reasons, it's much easier to make these changes gradually over a century or two as happened in England. Um, though you know, throughout that time, uh, as E.P. Thompson, famous British social historian, ha, ha, has shown, there's lots of protests in England, lots of riots, lots of strikes. Um, so even then, it's certainly not kind of a, a smooth, consensual process. But I, I, in Jamaica, the suddenness of the change, I do think is very important. And also because there's no... Real chance for the Jamaican state to learn to exercise its power effectively, which in some ways was was very good for um, Black Jamaicans who were able to buy land, who were able to establish an independent existence away from the sugar plantations. But I, I do think it's very important that Um, when, for example, the tax on land was proposed in 1833, the governor of Jamaica basically says we could never do that. We could never collect these taxes. We could never enforce evictions for non-payment of taxes. You know, there's no way that the Jamaican state can handle this. Whereas in England, there's a much longer, um, a much longer time span of state building and of increasing state power to uh, be able to Institute these coercive policies, and I think that um, is a huge difference between Jamaica and England, and then kind of on the on the other side there's also a difference between Jamaica and the United States, where I, I see despite the you know American story of small government the American state governments are much stronger uh, than Jamaica
0: mm. well so in Jonathan, Jonathan in in clothing uh... So, so Jonathan in in closing I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this initial chapter of your dissertation in relation to the larger thesis or project of the dissertation as as a whole to the to the extent you sort of worked it through at this point
1: yes uh, so the dissertation is going to trace both the US and Jamaica from British emancipation that we've been talking about through roughly 1900. Um, I'm very interested in the impact that British emancipation in uh, in the Caribbean has on abolitionists and pro-slavery thinkers in the United States, and how it shapes American abolition policy. Um, so there's definitely a connective element. But the comparative part, I'm really interested, as I said before, in the kind of broadest question of how law shapes and enacts these massive transformations. And in both places, there are lots of new laws that are passed. There's lots of new coercive infrastructure that is put into place. But things go very differently. I I think many listeners will be much more familiar with the American uh, side of sharecropping, of the defeat of Reconstruction. Um, And in the United States, far more formerly enslaved people and their descendants are still growing cotton in 1900 than Jamaicans are growing sugar um, in 1900. And to me, this points to the importance of law and the importance of state power um, and also its ability to be challenged um, from below, which I think comes through very clearly in both cases. And on the legal side, something else that I think has become very uh, clear to me through this research is the importance of all of these procedural protections, um, of which in the 19th century, there are very few. I think all of us, especially who've you know, received our uh, legal education in you know, the post 1960s are very used to living in the world after the war in court and after the rights revolution, where you have a right to a lawyer and you have a right to a jury trial. And especially for minor offenses in the 19th century, this just isn't the case. And so it's very easy for the state to create vague uh, and discretionary offenses and to arrest large numbers of people. Um, and to find them, to put them to work uh, on chain gangs, public works. And so my goal is to kind of trace these histories and look at what I see as very similar intentions and very uh, divergent results across the United States and Jamaica after um, both countries' emancipations.
0: Mm. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Like I said, I really enjoyed this chapter and talking to you about it. And I, I look forward to seeing the larger project develop over time.
1: Thank you so much. This was great. Mm,
2: Babylon burn. They have no water Fire, fire Fire, fire Fire, fire To? Who you gonna run to Who you gonna run to Ain't having no mercy Stand up and fight it Stand up and fight it Fight, stand up and find your fight and give me freedom Babylon burning Babylon burning Babylon burning, Babylon burning. they haven't got no water I see the fire, hot the fire, I see the fire, and they haven't got no water.